As most of you know, though, not all of you since you know, this is a podcast and I really don't get to know who's listening and who isn't. The Pickett household was a bit shaken this last week. On Monday night, I was enjoying a good game of League of Legends with my friends, and I see that my wife is calling me, and in fact, I've already missed one call. That's strange, she's just upstairs. And she was calling to let me know that her water was broke, and our baby girl's on her way two weeks early. Which, in retrospect, shouldn't have been a surprise, because our other one came two weeks early as well. So, I I jump off my computer, I grab our to-go bags, and we head to the hospital. Hannah Patrice Pickett was born 3.44 on Tuesday morning, coming in at 8 pounds, 15 ounces, so basically just 9 pounds. Big baby. And about 20 minutes long. 20 inches long. Sorry. And then, right away, they took her from us. Right after Hannah was born, they took her from us, and there was this certain commotion going around the room, a certain kind of heaviness kind of a noisy silence is the way I describe it. The nurse tech calls her attendee to come over. They are worried about her breathing and her posturing. I tend to, to Candace while trying to keep one ear open to trying to hear anything. Words like 100% oxygen. Can I have some help here? This is not normal. Are heard in bits and phrases as they try to keep their voices low as to not concern us. They put on her. They put her on a cart and move her away. About two hours, we are moved into another room, and someone comes to tell us they are worried that she is having seizures, and that they're going to transfer her to Children's Mercy. At this point, we had not picked out a name, because we wanted to hold her first. Let that first moment of touch, that moment of warmth, be the the thing that pushes us in one way or another on these names. But sitting there, that is a moment that's going to sit with me. It's a moment of Job. Sitting there, having my wife look up at me, saying we need to name her, just in case she dies. I do not want our daughter to die not having a name. Having to name my daughter, who I haven't even held yet, because there's a reality that she may die before I get to. My wife and I cry. We choose a name. They invite us to walk down and take some pictures with her before she gets transferred. And we put our hands on her. Now, I'm going to have a moment of vulnerability with y'all. And as a pastor, I know of healings that happen. But overall, I am still left largely skeptical. I have seen the Benny Hens of this world steal money from fake healings. I have such a cynical heart that even though Christ tells his disciples that they will do greater things than he Christ, the one who healed the sick, made the lame walk, give sight to the blind, that they, that I, will do greater things than he. I have friends and co-workers who have experienced this type of divine healings, and others who have prayed and not not received such a touch of the divine. I have laid hands many times and prayed, half believing the words, my words, are full of divine power and half believing that my words are just blessed assurance to the person listening. But at that moment, I laid my hands on my daughter, who was struggling to breathe, whose brain was sending erratic signals. I prayed for healing. 
I thought of summoning my whole being and placing it into my hands to heal. I thought of my sins yet confessed and how they might be limiting the Lord from hearing me. I thought of the futility that faith presents us, that sometimes it is just a weighted breath on a weary heart. I thought, let me take this pain for my sweet, sweet daughter. But I guess maybe at the end of it, maybe most of all, I thought, let your will be done. Because this is the one thing that I know. This is not something I can handle. It's not a weight that I was meant to bear. I would be stuck more in this situation where I would have thought to myself, I should have done more. What if we missed some type of sign? What happens if we did more testing? The what ifs, the what ifs, the what ifs. Instead, part of laying my hands is that remembrance that there is nothing that I can do. But show up, put my hands on her chest, and wait upon the Lord. However heavy that burden may be, I lay it down because it was not meant for me to carry. I thank you all for those of you who have been praying for us and continue to pray for us. The good news is that she has not had any seizures. And much like her mother, she keeps passing every test with flying colors. Hannah is doing very well, but is still in the NICU. Which means I've actually been sitting here writing this sermon while she is working on her tan underneath Billy Lubin lights. I've actually been writing a lot of this sermon from my mobile phone. And you might ask yourself, Jerry, why are you writing a sermon? Why are we even meeting? Surely you can take the time off. And I'll respond that this sharing of the work the Lord has called me to do gives me a little bit of sanity during this times. As much as this may seem like work, it is a work that reminds me of a God who is and a peace that only God can offer. As I stay in the rhythm of God, all things will continue to float on. And well, right now, I really need that feeling that all things can float on. So we can put down our tissues and pick up our pitchforks because we're right back into the Lord laying down his diss track through the MC Hosea on how Ephraim has disappointed him once again. Outside action matters to the Lord, but also what happens in the heart of his people. See, at the beginning of chapter 7, the Lord is saying that he sees the sins, these raiding and acts of evil that are happening on the outer parts of the land of Ephraim. Like, there are these outside actions that you are doing that are evil. But that does not distract him from also seeing the actions of the heart. Because once again, as though we have talked about it many times throughout this series, it's not just about what you have memorized or what you recite. It's about your actions. It is also about your heart. It is about knowing the Lord and knowing the Lord intimately. Because this power of knowing, it's knowing that we talked about earlier when we talked about Gomer and Hosea. The power of being intimately known changes you. And this is what the Lord again is saying to Ephraim is look at your actions. And by looking at your actions, I can see what's happening inside of your heart. By what your hands do, by what your feet do, I can see what your heart and where your heart is. And this is so true of us as humans, right? 
our words are meaningless because our actions really do show who we are. There's reasons why statements like talk is cheap and if you're going to walk the walk, you I mean, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk are used so much because our words do not always align with our actions. And this is true for Ephraim, a nation that the Lord has told them to take care of the widow and the children and both have gone hungry. A nation the Lord has told them to care for the poor and the rich have just gotten richer. A nation the Lord has told them to take care of the sick, and yet it's only the healthy that grow strong. So when the Lord looks down upon them, the Lord says, I know your heart because I see it in your actions. Your words mean nothing to me because they are just empty words. As Jesus would continue to say at some point later on in the Gospels, they're whitewashed tombs. Or as John the Baptist called them, a brood of vipers. As the prophet Hosea says, their deeds will show who they are front in front, right in front of my face. By their wickedness, they made the kings glad and gave joy to the officials with their lies. Nothing accepts God more than when his church has bent the knee to the kingdoms of this world. When we look to make politicians and kings and the like happy over doing what God has called us to do. When we look to them, these local deities, these kings, politicians, and look to them for validation, and we look to them for power and for protection versus when we look to where God is. And I think that this is one of the tensions that I do really see in front of us a lot. We look to local powers and principalities to protect us, and nothing gets God jealous more than that. And God constantly tells them that the plans of mice and men will often go and rye. And in fact, the Lord gets into a little bit of his language of the great British bake-off here and akins Ephraim to badly baked bread, telling them how they burn like a hot oven, an oven too hot will burn the bread before it has the chance to bake, or how they are like flatbread that is only cooked on one side, which would obviously get you kicked out of the tent. But in seriousness, one of my favorite analogies the Lord constantly uses for imagery throughout the Old Testament and the Bible is this idea of a consuming fire, or in this example, a hot oven. When the Lord is talking about how easy it is easy for a fire to consume, because it burns without abandon, to burn all of the things around it, to just consume without intention. I like that. To consume without intention, to destroy without thought. God, Hosea is, God is using Hosea in this baking analogy to point this out as well. That Ephraim has been so consumed by its own hate and anger, its own fear and anxiety. It's been consumed to a point where it's beginning to devour itself. It's consumed to a point where it's no longer being effective, like only baking one side of bread. It's consumed itself so much, they have lost vision of the Lord. The only one who could actually help them in this situation, they have cut themselves off from because they are so consumed. Their fire burns so brightly inside of them that they cannot see anything else. They are too consumed. Then the Lord in verse 11 makes a reference to Ephraim being like a dove, being both innocent and dumb. It's important again to note that the cultural context of this time, the dove would have been recognized as a sacrifice for atonement. Doves 
were usually chosen because of two reasons. They were considered good nature and innocent, and because of that, the second reason was they were very easy to catch. And thus, they were used a lot for temple sacrifice. The Lord chose to describe Ephraim as a dove because of their own innocence and nativity. And given that the Lord just ended talking about them being consumed by fire, which obviously is how things were sacrificed at that time. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but things were bled dry because once again, the Lord has something about blood and then they were burned to a crisp. So it seems that the Lord is alluding to them when he talks about them being burnt up and then referring to them as doves, as alluding to them being part of sacrifice, that Ephraim, like the dove, is being sacrificed for their sins. They are condemned by their actions even the innocent who are among them, even the naive, and are being put into the desert for it, because all have fallen short. And God, once again, following in through Hosea, begins to speak of provision, saying that Israel has slashed itself for other gods, for grain and for wine, instead of going to the Lord. Now, this act of self-harm had intention. People believed that gods of that time demanded sacrifice, especially these Baal gods, these other gods that they would refer to. And once again, what better way to give sacrifice than your own blood? And what was actually very different at the time is that the God of Israel never demanded blood from its people. And in fact, he actually demands the exact opposite, like we talked about last week when he we see the original sin of Cain and Abel, and the Lord says his blood cries out from the ground. Humanity's blood is sacred to God, and it should never be spilled. It was these other gods that demanded it. And Israel's desire to find fulfillment in seeking after these other gods, they did something that God did not desire. And how many times is that us? How many times is that me? How many times do I do things that God forbids in order for me to fulfill instead of seeking the one who will fulfill me? And it's also kind of easy to judge Israel without looking in the mirror. We ask them, how could you be so foolish after everything God had done for them? How quickly can you forget of how God saved you from Egypt? How God has constantly taken you into the promised land? How easy is it for you to forget? But then we take a step back and look at our own lives and begin to realize that we are just two kids in a mud puddle trying to wipe each other clean. Our judgments of past behavior often block out our ability to see our own present failures. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back, even though I don't know if there's anybody behind you, but I'm going to say it again. Our judgment of past behaviors often block out our ability to see our own present failures. We judge out of some type of anxiety to separate ourselves so that we could feel better. Surely we are not like them. Surely we are different now. And for this, this I want to apologize. I want to apologize on how the American church has thought itself different from judging its past self. Judging the past without staring into the mirror of present reflection. I apologize specifically how this is, the church has been dealing with race. The American church has been dealing with race. We are so quick to judge the old American church and how it handled things like segregation, Jim Crow, and racism during its time. We, while thinking that we are free from current judgment based because we are not acting like them. It's sometimes easy in a vacuum to see things clearly and how they're wrong without recognizing that we don't currently exist in vacuums. 
we have a current context that has just as many complex issues on how race is treated in the American church. And this is not a time for us to pat ourselves on the back, but rather to use that hand to push ourselves forward and put ourselves in front of a mirror. I apologize for how the American church has forgotten the faces of our fathers, and instead we pretend like we have not inherited their sin. Just It's just like it's just like it's easy to hear the words of Hosea and his condemnation of Ephraim and say, well, that's not us today. And I want to offer that it is indeed us. And today, I want to apologize for the many ways that we have forgotten to look into that holy mirror and see what is reflected. So one last thing on Hosea 7 before we move into chapter 8. I promise the sermon won't be going on for too much longer. At the end of chapter 7, Hosea mentions that they will be ridiculed in Egypt. And this is one of God's favorite clapbacks that he constantly brings up throughout the Old Testament. Saying, hey, remember those people that I freed you from? They were going to make fun of you because uh, you're in a worse position from when they left. This is God's subtle way of saying that you have missed the point of freedom and instead still choose to be in slavery even though you're already free. So, like, I have freed you from Egypt, and yet you could continually choose to be enslaved anyways. Why The Egyptians are going to make fun of you. Because why did they, God bring you out of Egypt if you're just going to live in similar terrible ways? He's trying to say, hey, remember. Remember slavery and how much you wailed against it. I have freed you from that, so why go back to it? He says the Egyptians will laugh at you. Okay, so let's get into Hosea 8 with that in the memory because it is important because it kind of comes back up in Hosea 8. So Hosea 8 starts with God saying that there's this bird of prey that's flying over the city. And I think this would be better visualized if you kind of conjured up in your head this scene from The Lion King where the vultures are circling in almost dead Simba, which I guess that means in this way the prophets are both Timon and Pumbaa. God is saying is that your sickness is making the birds hungry. For they believe it'll be time to eat soon. Israel, being the people of the desert, would have known this imagery well. And, the, and that's what, alongside the imagery that God gives next. The imagery of the calf. A calf made by the hands of the people of Israel. So, to quickly replant the importance of this, back in Israel history, Moses, played by Charleston Heston, tells Yul Brenner, also known as Pharaoh, to let his people go. And he actually famously does this by singing a song saying, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. Uh, ay, 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 ay. So Moses leads them out of the slavery to Egypt into the desert, where God calls Moses up to the mountain to receive the laws on which they will govern. The people of Israel believe Moses is taking too long or that he just could be dead on top of the mountain because they still really don't know if this God likes them or not. So they begin to melt down all their gold and silver that they have to make a golden calf to worship. The people need something they can see and touch to know what they are worshiping. And Moses, who was very much not dead, came down, saw what was happening, was so angered that he threw the tablets at the aisle, which melted them away. And Moses then gets forbidden to enter the promised land because he destroyed the tablets. And the people in the Israel wander the desert until that whole generation that was a part of it just dies out. Because God's anger burned against them. So in case you didn't know, now you know. This is important because it kind of folds itself into God's words to Hosea. God is once again asking, how long will this anger burn against Israel? How many more idols will Israel make? 
How long will they need to wander until they come back? I enjoy the poetic waxing from Hosea. Because they sow the wind, they will get the whirlwind. Standing grain but no fresh growth. It will yield no meal. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Because what he is saying is there is that you will actually see some fruitfulness. Like you will be able to be productive. But it won't be for you. The production won't benefit you. It will benefit other people. And this is going to say, just because you experience good things or see good signs, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm happy with you. Just because the grain is standing up doesn't mean it's going to multiply. Or even if you have a harvest, that the harvest will actually grow into something you get to enjoy. The Lord is basically telling Ephraim and Judah, if they keep living this life, they will be cut off from God. They will be an apostate distant from God. They will seek God, they will offer sacrifices to God, but nor will God nor will they find God, nor will God receive their sacrifice. And one last thing I wanted to hit on from chapter eight is from the verse from verse eleven. When Ephraim adds when Ephraim add uh, verse eleven, sorry. When Ephraim added more altars to take away sin, they became altars to him for sinning. The reason I like this little turn of phrase is because Ephraim is building altars to God, trying to appease God, but these altars actually end up hurting Ephraim more. And how many times is this us? Taking on more and more things for God, thinking that in some way all of these altars will make us holy, that if we do that all that we do for God is what actually makes us holy, that if we were just to build more altars, do more prayers, tithe more, surely then if we just did more, then we actually are holy, that these acts in themselves actually begin to replace God for us. Because like the calf, it is something that we can point to, to have some sort of reflective value to ourselves. We are holy because we've made holy things. The Lord says through Hosea that this can actually just lead to more sinning. That we build worship idols to worship instead of actually worshiping God. We think that our holy acts make us holy. Instead, as God reminds Ephraim, reminds Judah, reminds Israel, reminds you, reminds me. That it is God alone who makes us holy. No act that we can do makes us holy. No altar that we can build. No sacrifice that we can make. It is God alone. And we as humans are constantly comforted, more comforted by these false idols that we can touch rather than our faceless God. And yet these idols will never, that even though we can touch them, will never satisfy us. Because even the church was not meant to satisfy us in the end. Because it is alone that God can. I want to hit that again because I do think that this is where we do get twisted here a lot in our Christianity, especially in America, where we believe churches are what make us holy. Churches are what are supposed to satisfy us. This is why we have so many people who leave churches when they no longer satisfy them. They were meant to satisfy us. It is God alone who can do that. Yes, the church is a manifestation of God's hands, feet on here on earth. But let us not build the church into a golden calf. Let us not think that it is a church that makes us holy. Let's not get it twisted. So as Hosea 8 ends, God reminds them they could always return to Egypt. They could always return back to being slaves of this world. But as we know, God does not let that happen. As people who know the story of Jesus Christ, we do know that even though these last few chapters have felt so heavy of judgment, condemnation, and even damnation, that there is still salvation. 
that God through Christ is still going to make us holy, that God through Christ is still going to make us all clean, that God through Christ is still going to make everything all right. So we are going to be all right. Can you hear me? Can you feel me? Because we're going to be all right. Be blessed this week. And with having a kid in the NICU, I remind you and plead with you, please wash your hands.